Well, friends, it's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm very excited to be preaching from this passage. If you're a guest here, we are in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and we're in the 13th and final chapter. Um, this is actually a sermon letter, is what we would call it, and we call it that because it's primarily a sermon wrapped in a letter sent to a group of Christians in an urban context. And to be more specific, these were most likely Judaic Christians, meaning that they were formerly Jewish and then they converted over to Christianity. We read earlier in the letter that they flourished at a time, even under persecution, but now things are a little bit different. They're facing persecution again, and they're starting to be tempted by the challenges here. And so our author of this letter is a pastor, and he's writing to them to exhort them and encourage them, even though uh, hard times are at hand here. And he's been doing this throughout the whole letter, really by claiming that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is superior to Moses, that Jesus is superior to the angels, that Jesus is our great high priest and king, far superior than anyone else that's ever worn those titles, that Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant, which is far greater and superior than the old covenant, and that Jesus' sacrifice, of course, is greater than any other sacrifice. And so the author's given a whirlwind of theological and pastoral claims to the supremacy of Jesus here. And all that culminated in chapter 12 when we read that through Jesus we have received an unshakable kingdom. Now in chapter 13, the author's wrapping up with some final illustrations and exhortations to help the audience live by this truth, even though it means that they might struggle. And so the big idea that I want us to think about today is this question here. Are we following Jesus or our comfort? Both have something to offer and both cost us something. And so today, let's look at Hebrews 13. Uh, like last week, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, like Alistair did. All the scripture is going to be behind me. So if you would turn to chapter 13, and we'll start with verses 9 and 10. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by the eating of ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So our passage begins here with a warning to the audience, cautioning them against things like strange teachings and specifically this eating of ceremonial foods here. And so if this is the warning, what's the consequence here? Well, the consequence, the author claims, is that they might be carried away. And this phrase here, carried away, in this language would have meant ideas about wind and water. And so a good analogy to think about is actually a boat drifting out at sea. And while there might be elements very much like wind and water that are causing this boat to drift out at sea, there's also the, the fact that the operator of this boat has a part to play here. And that if not played correctly, the boat very well might drift here. And so what are the strange teachings then that is causing this warning to happen in the first place? Well, they're specifically not explained here. They probably would have been clear to the author and the actual audience, but we don't have the context. But what is clear to us here is that as it is in stark contrast to the very verse that precedes it that we heard about last week, which is verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Interestingly, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word teaching actually appears in the plural. Everywhere else, it's the singular teaching of Jesus Christ as handed down by the apostles here. But this is more than just rules. This isn't meant to be legalistic. The author is actually saying here that this is indeed a heart issue. Again, pointing to the supremacy of Jesus by saying it's only the, His grace that can strengthen our hearts here. 
Back in chapter 3, we read that a sinful and an unbelieving heart turns away from God. Yet later in chapter 10, we read that because of Jesus, we can approach God with true and sincere hearts. But in this case here, what are these ceremonial foods that they're attempting to strengthen their hearts by? Again, it's not clear, but it is important to note that since these were most likely Judaic Christians, these ceremonial foods, this was not probably some weird or odd or general pleasure. These were probably part of their cherished traditions that they still somewhat hold on to. These are part of their socio-religious roots. And so they wouldn't have been easy to let go of, and they also might not have obviously been a problem to them. Um, also, if this letter was written before 70 AD, it would have been at a time that Judaism was a legal religion here in the Greco-Roman Empire. And so this could have been a way, by partaking in this, that this group of Christians stayed under the radar and away from persecution. And so understanding all of this, understanding here how the audience is trying to hide in their comfort, what does the author then move on to do? Well, verse 10 is actually a remarkable statement because he comes out and completely flips the scenario that he was just talking about. All of a sudden, it's the Christians. It's the followers of Jesus now who have an altar. And the very people who are involved in the old covenantal system, the ones that our audience is associating with, they're now excluded. And so here we see that uh, the people who they're being associated with aren't partaking in Jesus. And the author's trying to say, as good as that might seem, that's not what it's all about anymore. Jesus is the one that has the true offer here, the one that actually is beneficial here. It's important to note, too, by the way, that the author's not implying that there is a new physical altar, a material altar. He's just trying to point, again, to the supremacy of Jesus here. And after doing this now, the author's going to move in to start to set the stage. The author is slowly progressing towards this climactic exhortation and encouragement. And so in order to do that, he's going to start to shift in verses 11 and 12. So go ahead and look at that with me here. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, these, this passage here requires a little bit of Old Testament knowledge. This actually uh, is pointing back to the Day of Atonement, a day in Israel and culture that the high priest would perform ritual sacrifices that were to remove all the sins from the, from, the, from the people. But it's not just about the fact here that Jesus' sacrifice, again, is superior to those old ritual sacrifices. The author is actually using a little bit of wordplay here. He's mentioning how Jesus was taken outside Jerusalem, outside the city gates, and then he's also making reference to how the animals, the bodies of the animals, were taken outside the city gates. And so we start to hone in then on this idea of outside the camp that the author uses. And this actually echoes back to the time when Israel was a nomadic tribe. They were on the move in the wilderness, and they would camp wherever they stopped. And so outside the camp had a meaning. And outside the camp was not a place that you wanted to be. Um, we might be unfamiliar with some of the imagery here, but the readers of this were definitely not. They understood the seriousness of this. This points back again, to the book of Leviticus, where there are rules and regulations regarding holiness and cleanliness codes for God. And outside the camp at that time was a place that unclean people had to go. It was a place for impure things. It was a place where criminals that had to be punished were taken out to be executed. And also, since this was a fortified camp, outside the camp meant being outside of that security here. And so, to put it shortly, 
Outside the camp is a place where you say goodbye to your comfort. And so with this said, now the stage is set. Probably the readers are a little unsettled, but at the same time, the author wants this because he's about to push into the final exhortations in verses 13 and 14. So let's turn to them. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. One commentator states that all previous exhortations in this book have led here. If you remember, the author has used multiple let us statements throughout this letter, saying things like, let us approach, or let us draw near, or let us enter. And these are all in reference to moving towards God. But here it's a bit different. Here he's saying, let us go to him outside. And so this action's different. This, unlike the others, doesn't feel safe. It isn't comfortable. And so we're faced with the discomfort and this is the kind of discomfort, honestly, that we still face today, where we choose to hide in our comfort rather than to follow Jesus. Now, this isn't even always intentional. Sometimes we do this without knowing, and it almost seems like we're just wired for it at times, but in big ways and small ways, it happens. And one of the ways that I see this happening in our culture is uh, we try and avoid the discomfort of interruptions in our lives. We try and go around masterfully ordering our life, removing the chance of our plans not going the way we want them to. And don't get me wrong, I've been guilty of this my entire life and still am to this day. In fact, one of the stories that I thought about as I was preparing for this um, was when I was, with, I was living in Japan for a couple years in my mid-20s, and I was a new Christian at the time. And when I got there, a funny but cool thing happened. Uh, Japanese people used to just come up to me publicly on the street talk to me and whatnot. It was a phenomenon. I never once has this happened to me in Vancouver, I'll tell you. Um, and it was cool because I got a chance to meet new people and, and share a bit about myself. But uh, then the conversation would run dry and it would end. And I, over the time, started to grow frustrations because I began to realize that there was a bit more of a desire to practice English than it was to you know, really connect or whatever. And so I started to avoid these interruptions because they would kind of sour my day. And I would tell people, um, you know, sorry, I'm in a hurry, I got somewhere to be, or even just simply, I don't want to talk right now. But even that didn't work, though. Uh, sometimes they'd press on, or sometimes um, that interruption was still not enough. And so uh, I decided to come up with a little tactic. I just started to respond to them in the little Spanish that I learned growing up in Florida. And this worked. This killed this conversation right away. And I'd be lying if I said that I didn't take a little bit of pleasure in watching the confused looks on their faces as, uh, as we walked away. Um, but then the day came, and you could probably imagine, when somebody's face actually perked up and beamed with joy, and they then proceeded to respond and be in fluent Spanish. <laughs> uh, ruining my plan, making me look like an idiot. Um, but that happens. I mean, so it's silly, but honestly, what I was doing there was I was running for my discomfort in those moments. And today, to be honest, I would gladly welcome those conversations, because those are just people walking up to me, wanting a conversation, and all these moments would be to share the gospel with them. And unfortunately, I know that's a funny story, but we also do this in other ways as well. And some of them actually uh, are a bit more serious, you know? I mean, I know that as Christians, we're, we're guilty of things like siding with um, our political parties more, or our sports teams more than we are with the kingdom of God. You know, we might do this because it's more comfortable to be a part of something that's culturally relevant that we have in common with more people than it is to be different, to be the minority. Uh, that said, we also might just find ourselves hanging out primarily with Christians rather than with non-Christians. 
also to avoid that guilty feeling of spending time with non-Christians and never bringing up Jesus or sharing the gospel with them. Or even we go, we go about doing good deeds, and these could be really good deeds too, right? Like caring for creation, caring for refugees, sharing our wealth and time with the poor. But sometimes we never attribute this to Jesus. Um, it looks more like reasons that non-Christians might do the same deeds as. And that's not to say that deeds are worthless, don't get me wrong, but then it beckons the question, well, what's the difference about us following Jesus and being a Christian then? Right? And so the author understands these desires. He understands how the audience wants to retreat into their comfort. And so he's pushing them, he's exhorting them, saying, let's go outside the camp. As a, a good pastor, he's saying, us. Because this is a call for all Christians, including himself, and of course, including us today. This is the action that needs to accompany their faith and ours. And given what we just discussed about outside the camp, it can be confusing because if outside the camp is such a messy, dirty, dangerous place, whatever, why is the author saying, well, we need to get out there? To the, the meaning is clear to the listeners of this letter here. It's that following Jesus may require sacrifice, but it is the right choice. And how can we be sure of this? The entire book of Hebrews that we've already read. Look at what it says. Jesus is superior Jesus has made the unclean clean. Jesus is our forerunner, already carved out the path, and all we have to do is follow, and we can be assured that it's trustworthy. We read in chapter 11 about people like Moses and others who made this choice, people who gave up their homes, they gave up their riches, they even gave up their lives. But even so, what Jesus has done is still infinitely greater than any of them. And as good as that is, there is still a cost. It says here, they must bear the same disgrace that Jesus did. But in chapter 11, we read that Jesus, when he endured the cross, scorned its shame. And the word scorn here, it means more than just to have contempt for. It means to look down on, to think less of, to not recognize the power of. And our author here is saying that the readers are to do the same thing for this disgrace. And are they actually able to do this? Is it going to be easy? Well, in some sense not, but in some sense, yes. And why is that? Because the author reminds them that they have a city to come. What they're living in right now is not all that there is. This, this new, the new city is the city of the living God. It's the unshakable kingdom. And their city, their current situation, their current reality will not endure. The things that they're clinging on to for comfort and support, they will be shaken. The strange teachings will be shaken. The ceremonial foods will be shaken. Yet also their foes will be shaken. The disgrace, the pain will all be shaken. And so friends, anytime we bear the same disgrace, my prayer is that we would scorn this shame as well, knowing that whatever we face in our lives in no way matches the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is not, though, to invalidate the pain that comes with this disgrace. There's a real tension here in our lives. We, we know this. There's the good news of the gospel, yet there's still this pain of going out there and living the Christian life. And I guarantee you, Jesus Christ is the only one powerful enough to resolve that tension. Uh, the best that our secular culture can offer cannot do so. The greatest tolerance that can be mustered up cannot do so. The best governments we can come up with, technology, money, whatever, it cannot do so. And because of this, following Jesus, it is the right choice, not our comfort. 
Strange teachings are not the right choice. The other gods and the idols in our life and our culture are not the right choice. They all might lead to temporary satisfaction, but they will not endure. They will be shaken. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. So we bear the disgrace, but not by our own strength. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so saying this, our author has again delivered a powerful reason why following Jesus is the better choice, better than our comfort. But what is this going to look like for the audience? And so our author is about to illustrate this in verses 15 and 16. So let's look there. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so the passage concludes here with a practical application. What does this look like? Well, the audience is now called to new types of sacrifices, right? There's no more animal sacrifices of the past. These are sacrifices of thanks and of praise, of going out and professing. It's important to note that professing here doesn't just mean believing. Not even public, privately, but it doesn't even just mean going out and confessing. It means publicly praising, especially due to the fact that the author is calling it open. And he's using the words like sacrifice here. This is going to be visible. This is going to be seen. This is going to put them on the radar. And when the author says, do not forget, in verse 16, he's just saying this because the readers already know this, yet they need to hear it again, lest they be carried away, lest they start to veer from that path that Jesus has carved out. And the author isn't shying away from the fact that this could lead to persecution, that this will be difficult, that this might bring back some of the previous pains, and then there might be worse pains to come. Yet he is clear that the sacrifices that are mentioned here matter to God. They have present and immediate importance. Now, unlike previous Jewish sacrifices, these are moving from an external to an internal nature. They're showing the status of the heart confirmed and strengthened for the glory of God. So are we following Jesus or our comfort? Like I said, both have something to offer, but the grace of Jesus is infinitely greater. And both cost us something, but not following Jesus is also the infinitely greater cost. And we're always making this choice actively or passively. There's no neutral ground here. There's no way to take a time out. And so we should ask ourselves, how are we doing in this? Well, first question is, are we making these types of sacrifices that are pleasing to God? Are they sacrifices of praise and thanks, and are they public? Part of our Anglican tradition is doing the daily offices. This is a time during the day that we set aside to get into Scripture and to pray. And if you're not familiar with it, check it out at our information table. We can tell you more about it. We have a book that we use for it. But inside that book, we pray that we would not just praise God with our lips, but with our lives also. And that we would pray for God to 
set our hearts on fire for the Lord, that these would be outflowings that would absolutely be visible to the world around us here. And we have to remember that while God is working on our heart and doing this, that there are so many people out there whose hearts are not receiving this, whose hearts are not pointed at Jesus, but they're pointed elsewhere. They're pointed to things that in no way deserve the glory that is owed to God himself. And these hearts are up there being shaped by things, and we're called to go out there and to proclaim Jesus and to share what he's done in our life. Who else or what else is worthy of such praise? There is nothing that should stand in the way of us giving everything we have for his glory. And so we should go out there trusting in Jesus and seeking to do this. And we have to ask ourselves, how comfortable are we, right? By the grace of God, we're able to live a life full of joy, absolutely. But it does not promise continuous comfort. And if you find yourself never in a state of discomfort, then I think it's worth asking the question why that might be. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, or you're not saved. It just means that we might have been carried away, right? We might be off the path. Now, what could this look like? What could comfort look like? It could look like spending our time on us more than others. Often it does, and a story that this reminded me of was a time that I was with some friends back in Florida. We were sitting by a lake, and we were having a great time, great conversation. It was the kind of moment that you don't want interrupted. But along came a woman in a wheelchair, and when she got close to us, she started to break down hysterically. So, of course, we run over to her, and we ask her, what's going on? Are you okay? And after a few minutes, we started to piece together that she had just lost her husband, and that they used to actually take walks around this lake at night. Her name was Carrie. She had one leg. She was in a wheelchair. Uh, she lived in poverty, and she was in a lot of pain, but she found some people at that moment to share her pain with. But as time started to tick by, and it was 10 minutes, and then half an hour, and then over an hour, a really terrible thought grew in my head. And it was this. It was that I wish this was one of the situations where I could just give them money, and, and it would be over, and I can get back to my comfortable life. And it was very convicting, because I realized then and later on that I was trying to serve out of my comfort and not my discomfort. For others... Money might be the comfort. We earn it, we keep it, we feel safe having it, we feel protected by it, giving no thought to how it might best be spent for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom, for others. And people think that maybe the time will come when it's time to be spent or given, and at that time I will uh, do my best, but for now, my money is just going to take a time out. And I know for a lot of us, too, our image is what's at stake our status. <clears throat> we shy away from publicly revering Jesus because it could very well affect our jobs. It could affect our grades at school. It could affect our relationships. But let me ask you, how does that moment of discomfort compare against the eternity that people out there will go without knowing Jesus? I know it's hard. When I was a young atheist. I was one of the people that you did not want to evangelize to. I was, I was a jerk. Um, I'd like to say that I ventured out purposefully to find Christians to argue with and to try and wage war against. And I also say that I won most of those arguments, but really I just beat them back with 
my anger and my stubbornness. And for a lot of those Christians, they probably walked away thinking, oh man, that did not work out well at all. Like, I, did, I think I did more harm than good there. Let me tell you this though. While I might have beaten them back, I in no way beat back God. The words that he spoke through them stuck in my head and I could not get rid of them. At night when I was trying to sleep with all the drugs that I was pumping through my body, those words convicted me and started to work in my heart. And today being Mother's Day, as I was coming here, I was reminded of probably the person that I waged war the most against growing up, my mom, who was a believer all of her life. And while she tried to sincerely love me and share her faith with me, I would never have anything to do it. I would chuck it back in her face and I would mock her, bringing her to tears. And the disgrace that she had to bear was real. But I also know that the strength of her heart from Jesus was real because it is by his grace that today we are able to enjoy the Lord together. And it was a miracle that a few years ago I was able to invite my mom to a church service with me where I was actually serving communion that day. And I'm standing there in line, handing out the elements, and I see my mom down the line, and just my heart starts to stir right away. And I knew in that moment, as we locked eyes from far away, we had the same thought going through our heads. And that was just, how could it be that the boy that used to yell and scream against Jesus and mock her was about to serve her communion? And by the time she got up to me in line, our faces were covered in tears. It is difficult. A lot of us bear that difficulty when we go out there and we try and profess the glory of our Lord. But let me tell you, Jesus is good. He is trustworthy. He shows up even in the most secular schools or our jobs or our families or places that we feel like are just void of God and the gospel. He is there. And remember, all of us have been called to follow Jesus outside the camp. You're not just to go out alone with a bunch of knowledge. We're doing this together. This is why our community groups are so critical. This is why praying together is so valuable to us. Together with Jesus as our pioneer, the anchor of our faith, we can bear the disgrace. And I can personally say, as somebody who spent more than half my life away from the Lord, how grateful I am for the people that stepped outside of their comfort for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of me, and I know that I'm not alone. So praise God. Praise His name. Praise Him forever and ever.